Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the Investing Power Hour number 85. My name is Brett Schaefer. I'm joined as always by Ryan Henderson and special guest host of the new J Row show, uh, which I see he has another guest there uh, this, this for any Leo. of the YouTube watchers. Yeah, it is yeah. John Rotanti. John, uh, how are you doing today? And I guess, how is Leo? Uh, hey, Ryan and Brett, always glad to be on with y'all. Leo is great. Um, so my girlfriend and I are living in Missoula, Montana, just for the three last months of this year, just having some fun up in Montana. And the Airbnb that we're renting has a dog door. And so we've opened that and just Leo gets to go out whenever he wants and like explore and hunt. And he has brought in a live bird and a live mouse. So he keeps it interesting. Hey, that's Montana <laughs> for you. Yeah. yeah All right. Exactly. Well, as as I did say, uh, you have just started the J-Row show. Um, and it's been three episodes. Uh, one of them just came out today. For anyone that doesn't know who's listening on Sundays, we do these live every Thursday morning. So how has the experience been? And it's kind of interesting because you kind of have the idea when you start the show, you're like, all right, it's going to be like this. But then when you get into it, things evolve. So how is it going? I've, I'm loving it. Um, I'm grateful to everyone that is listening and supporting me uh, through it. Grateful to um, you guys for editing it and doing all of the back end stuff on it as well. You know, yeah. So we dropped the third episode today with with Quack Tran. the The entire uh, premise of the podcast is to study processes and frameworks and mindsets that people put in place um, to maintain winning performance. And Quack just wraps himself in process. And so I think the third episode is good because it's shorter than my first two. It's not even an hour. And, you know, Quack's got three bucket of stocks that he invests in. And he's got a three-stage research process. And he's got three layers of risk management. And he just added in the last few years two process improvements. And every year they do an annual uh, moat trajectory review and all of their holdings and all of their watch list uh, companies. And then every year they also do a, uh, they dig through any sectors or industries that just got smashed to see if they can find any hidden gems. And so everything he does is about like process and stages and layers. Nice. Uh, and I like that. I like that idea of just going rumbling through the garbage or rumbling through whatever got destroyed from the year before. Yeah. Uh, I guess we're, we're going to talk about some of the news from the week, but before we get to it, I want to ask a couple more questions about you and your show. Please. For anyone that's listening right now who hasn't listened to your show, maybe give a little bit of a an explainer on what it is and who your target audience is. So, um, yeah. So as... As I said, I, I'm trying to explore the processes, frameworks, guardrails, structures, and mindsets 
um, masters put in place, what it takes to achieve mastery. And because I'm an investor, um, most of the episodes will be focused on investing. Uh, and you know, as far as target audiences, I, th- I can think of maybe three groups. One is um, allocators, so RIAs, um, financial planners, certified financial planners, wealth advisors, stockbrokers, um, anyone that is putting their clients into mutual funds or separately managed accounts. You know, I. I am trying to pull back the curtains as far and wide as I can on what the internal investing processes look like at these firms. And I think through the first three episodes, um, we've done that. We've achieved that. Um, You know, a second audience would be uh, investors that have an investing firm, you know, founders that have an investing firm or that are thinking about starting an investing firm that are looking for best practices to implement. Um, Either they're looking to start a firm or they currently already own a firm and run a firm, but they're looking to level up and, and, you know, put better processes in place. And then the third audience would be um, analysts looking to get a job uh, at some of these buy side firms and what it's like to work day in and day out with Bill Nygren at Harris Associates at Oakmark uh, with Dan O'Keefe on the Artisan Partners Global Value Team or with Quoc Tran at Tran Capital, which is a boutique based out of uh, San Francisco. Like, What's it like to work with these master investors day in and day out? I got to say, well, I was... uh... The way we do this is is Brett or Brady does a lot of the editing. So sometimes Brett and I get to hear it for the first time when it actually goes live and gets published. And if you are like an analyst and you're aspiring to join a fund, I cannot, especially the Bill Nigren one, because he went, uh, I haven't gotten through the whole Dan yeah. O'Keefe one, but you got to listen to that because he goes through basically literally your daily tasks of what your job will be and how to do it well. And if you're thinking about applying to anything like that, just, I can't express it enough. That's, that's a must listen. Yeah. That's and what here's what, uh, yeah, exactly. And for anyone, we know our audience falls into that bucket as well. And we don't do this type of stuff. So anyway, we know that our audience would, would love that. Uh, one more question. What is, kind of the next plans for the shows. You kind of launched this man a little over a month or so. What are the next plans maybe for 2024, maybe just the next few months? You know, I've I've got um I've got three interviews lined up. And I'll just say that all three, like I'm so excited for these. Like um <laughs> I don't want to give away two of the names. One I'll give away. So I am going to be interviewing Todd Alston, who is um, chief investment officer at Parnassus Investments. Parnassus is the largest pure play, like sustainability or ESG mutual fund uh, in the US. Todd is also, he's a five-star manager, according to Morningstar, but he's also on the Barron's Roundtable. And the reason I mentioned Todd is because a couple weeks ago, I posted on, on X um, an article, a research report that he published on the semiconductor manufacturing cycle you know where we are in the current cycle and he started off as a semiconductor analyst he has lived through eight semiconductor cycles this guy gets it and that post for me 
went viral. Like based on my metrics on on X, it went viral. It had like 300 likes and 50 reposts in like less than a day. And for me, that is a lot. And so um, I promised my Twitter followers that I would get him to come on the show. And he has agreed to come on the show. Um, but, you know, the two others are that I have lined up are, you know, top respected, revered, admired investors on the planet today. All right. That's a perfect tease. And again, that is the J. Rowe show. Go check that out. I'm excited to listen to the one that came out this morning. Uh, get it wherever you get your podcast. Okay. Let's hit some of the topics. Ryan, you put a lot in here. So maybe, I don't know, Ryan, you choose. Or you, you choose. What, what do you want at first? Hmm. Well, I want to get this one out of the way because it's a little bittersweet. Uh, the Buffett trading scandal. Did you guys read about this at all when it came out? I'm getting some nods from John here. Yeah, I did. I read the, the yeah. ProPublica yeah. article. Okay. Well, I'll kind of go through it. And maybe we can give some some thoughts on it. But there was an article from ProPublica um, that basically highlights, you know, Buffett has he's been very open about the fact that he has a personal account in that's run separately from his you know any berkshire trading activities um and he's always kind of said that there'd be a conflict of interest if we were trading the same stocks and so this ProPublica article says on at least three occasions buffett has traded in stocks in his personal account in the same quarter or the quarter before berkshire bought or sold shares of the same company um i'll it's kind of interesting because he was oftentimes going against what he was saying in public. So and sometimes even going against what Berkshire itself was doing. So um, in, I believe it was 2009, he did an f- interview with Fortune kind of praising Wells Fargo. And you know this had a huge impact on Wells Fargo. It seemed at least like the shares jumped 13%. People assume that a lot of that had to do with Buffett's praise for the company. But he privately, that same day that he did the interview, sold $20 million worth of Wells Fargo shares. Now, I'll, I'll save any any of my own personal takes for the end here. The second occasion was, it says over several days, he sold $35 million worth of Johnson & Johnson shares. At that point, Berkshire had effectively revealed that it too had sold Johnson & Johnson shares. That's the one that kind of concerns me a bit. And then the last one here, it says, in August 2009, Buffett appeared to move in his personal portfolio in the opposite direction of Berkshire's portfolio. He sold $25 million worth of Walmart stock in his personal account, even as Berkshire almost doubled its stake. Now, with the Wells Fargo and the Walmart one, I kind of think he doesn't want to seem like he has a conflict of interest, so he's getting rid of them in his personal account. Now. I bet he might touch on this in at the meeting this year and say, like, just give full disclosure on everything that happened. But the only one that kind of concerns me is selling out kind of the same quarter that he sold out of Johnson and Johnson. What did you guys make of this? Does it feel newsworthy? Is it any tarnish on his reputation for you? Chit Chat Money is brought to you by Interactive Brokers, but we like to call them by their ticker symbol, IBKR. Designed for active traders and sophisticated investors, Interactive Brokers offers trading assets in 150 markets with 27 different currencies, 
charges USD margin loan rates from 5.83% to 6.83%, rated the lowest among margin fees. The ability to trade stocks, bonds, options, futures, commodities, and more with high interest rates paid on instantly available cash balances and the ability to lend your eligible stock shares to earn passive income all on one single unified platform. Restrictions may apply. For more information, visit ibkr.com member SIPC. Open an account with IBKR today. I think it was a. the article also implies that he may have violated Berkshire Hathaway's own internal rules around ethics and, and trading. Um, if it turns out that's the case, that he violated the own rule, the own rules that he wrote. Uh, I think it was. I think it shouldn't have been done. I think it was a lapse of judgment in the very least. Um, and you know the amounts are so inconsequential relative to his net worth of a hundred billion dollars at the time of these trades. Maybe his net worth was less than that. You know, but fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty billion dollars. It seems inconsequential. Like why even do it for twenty million dollars here, twenty million dollars there? Uh, when you're worth that much money, um, you know, it could it could be just a lapse of judgment. It could be, um, you know, like a just like a brain fart on some level. Um, it could be more than that. He hasn't spoken out about it. He hasn't denied it. You can't really deny it. Um, I guess we got to wait until the meeting and to hear something like you said. Yeah, and I would say, last year there were is either last year or the year before there were accusations about him potentially insider trading with Activision Blizzard because of his close relationships with Bill Gates and he Microsoft. Shut that down though, right? Yeah, and he very yeah, that one didn't simply, make any sense. <laughs> yeah, he, he he pieced through every part of it and said, "Here's exactly what happened. Here's how I traded. Here's exactly when we bought, why we bought, that kind of thing." I would hopefully like to think that he'll do the same thing at this meeting and just describe kind of what his actual thought process was behind the actions because obviously the way ProPublica made it sound feels a little more malicious. But it doesn't I'll let Brett talk here in a second, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense just in the fact that, like you said, it's so inconsequential to his own wealth and what he does in Berkshire's portfolio ultimately matters so much more on his net worth and to his legacy. And to his yeah. legacy. Yeah. This well, I'd say one he might talk about it in the shareholder letter, possibly, uh, which is before the the annual meeting. Some of these don't look great. One I, I can't remember which one he had here, Ryan, but there's one that could maybe be explained, like he bought in his personal account and then later they bought. Like that's not the end of the I don't think that's the end of the world. But the one where you sell before Berkshire sells, I think it, or I don't know. Some of these do look like if it is how ProPublica outlined it, it's exactly what happened. I don't know if there's a good explanation there because I would note that they fired one of their longtime lieutenants. Uh, what is his name? David Solik. Sokol. Solik. So, yeah, so, so. whoever it was. It was like in 2011 for buying Lubrizol before they announced an acquisition of some sort related to that that was going to you know, boost the stock price. That's clear cut. 
you know, not that's violating probably every company. You know, you don't you have a rule against that. That's probably that's maybe I'd say definitely worse than this, but this is close to that if there's really no explanation here. And could it be coincidental? Yes, but I don't like that someone as like Buffett has a personal account like this. Yeah, like you're allowed to have it, but if you're someone with his stature, his legacy is whatever, I'd rather have everything just be in Berkshire, especially because they have the investments there as well. I also didn't like, while the tracker was incredible when they had that story of one of the lieutenants today, Combs or Weschler, I forget who has the $200 million plus Roth IRA where they just crushed it over the last 30 years. Yeah, that's great, but hey, look, why don't we put those, you know, how much time are you focusing on your Roth IRA? How much time are you focusing at Berkshire Hathaway? That's kind of how I think of it. Will it tarnish his legacy? I, I don't know. I guess we'd have to see. Um, but clearly, if he was going to, if someone in the company did this, it's, I think it's possible they get, they would get fired. If someone, yeah. if one of his lieutenants did this exact thing. At the time, at the time of some of these trades, there may have been someone else it was so cool might have been the one getting in and out of stuff too, right? Because he was managing some money for them at the time. So it's possible that it wasn't Buffett specifically, but it should have been communicated. The stuff where the ones where I think like who who really cares is if he's making if they're buying a big stake and okay, so they doubled their position in Walmart. If he sells out of his own measly little personal stake in his own account, I kind of think like, who cares? It seems like he was trying to get rid of it, so there wasn't a conflict of interest. But it's the one where he, it's the ones where he buys, and then they buy because he knows that if they buy something, the price will probably go up. Um, yeah, for the most part, if it's like a small position, I don't think anyone really cares. But that actually, I think maybe leads us into uh, the next question, which is Buffett filed his thirteen F. Did you guys oh take a look? 13F season. <laughs> Gotta love that. There was some uh, Liberty. They, they bought some Liberty positions. And then the other one, the big one, which I thought was absolutely hilarious, was they asked to file one of their positions confidentially. And everyone is just like, it could be, it could be my largest holding. You know, it could <laughs> yeah. be. It's probably the stock. <laughs> it might be like. Palantir or Tesla. And I'm like, yeah. I just, I just kind of doubt it. But the... Uh, any any thoughts on what the mystery stock could be, or maybe better question, why they chose to file confidentially? I think they I filed know. confidentially because they're still buying. Yeah, um, well, that's be a has to be a big stock. It has to be a large stock, then, right? I mean, um, it has to be. Look, I, I play this game every time. Every time. Buffett has a mystery stock and I've been wrong every time. Um, <laughs> but to play, you know, Schwab comes to mind. Mm. Um, huge brand, asset gathering machine. And, you know, depending on what you come up with for normalized earnings, you know, maybe trading at 10 times, 11, 12 times normalized earnings for for a brand that doesn't seem to go away, it's consumer facing things Buffett tends to like. Um, Disney uh, is is another one that comes to mind. Once again, consumer facing brand, 
you know, in that sort of used to be kind of blue chip staply uh, name, you know, da- down to 80. It was 80 recently um, per dollars per share. Um, there are some activist investors there where Buffett doesn't have a history with, but um, he has like sort of bought after the activists have done their work. For example, Peltz was involved with Heinz years ago, and then Buffett bought Heinz uh, in a partnership with 3G, I think it was, or something. So, um, you know, Disney comes to mind, Schwab comes to mind. Those are the two that come to mind for me. Brett, what's your pick? I would say either financials or energy makes sense to me. It seems to be what they are targeting right now. And with financials getting beaten down, I'd say that makes a lot of sense to have Schwab. So maybe it's one of the banks that they sold out of. Uh, it wouldn't be Bank stock. of America. <laughs> I don't know. Let's say one of the energy the companies. They have, uh, Ex- what, what is it? Exxon. Exxon. Right. Yeah, it could be one of the energy stocks they don't own. But yeah, I guess it might not make as much sense because they already own Chevron and Occidental. I- I'd go financials. Maybe it's JP Morgan or something like that. I-, I don't actually know what those stocks are trading at. But what are the large financials that could have been beaten down? Like Schwab yeah. makes a lot of sense that uh, as kind of a, one of those. And they already own Bank of America. So maybe it's, I'd say JP Morgan then if it's, yeah. it's one of those. Could be nailed that. Could be my largest. <laughs> yeah, our favorite, <laughs> our largest holdings. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. right, let's hit. Uh, I want to hit the. Or Ryan, do you have anything else on that? No, no. I, I honestly have no idea. I always think it's funny how everyone speculates when when that stuff happens. But I bet it's something that everyone will be underwhelmed with. Like, yeah. Oh. Okay. Like when, when he took a stake in HP or whatever it was. I was like, <laughs> yeah. All right. Not following you into that one, but all right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that's. Do not just follow Buffett. He makes mistakes sometimes, and you're not going to know when he sells or buys. So, absolutely. I want to hit this topic though. I think is my favorite one of the week, and it is the updated information we got on the. Maybe I'll call it the Google, Apple, Microsoft kind of big tech search trial. And this week we had a lot of stuff on the Apple Google distribution deal. Have did you guys follow this at all? Some of the information that came out there. Yeah, I mean maybe. Before we, uh, I guess the big revelation was that Apple pays, or excuse me, Google pays Apple 36% of Safari search revenue. And that was not supposed to be disclosed, but someone accidentally said it while on the stand. So now it's public information. Curious, maybe John, you go first. You said you've been following this. Curious your thoughts here and what it means for some of these companies. Because I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot of money that could change and go to different pockets now. I mean, I just read the headline. It was a shockingly large number. Um, that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot. That's more than a third. I, and you know, I I find that I find that like regulators start to pay attention at a third, like when companies get a third of an industry, third, you know, 30% of the market share in an industry, something like that. It's just kind of a number that jumps off the page that can that can get uh you know people talking. I'm you know, I'm not saying regulators are gonna look at this, try to redistribute some of this money some kind of way, but it's a big number. I think we yeah, all assumed it was going to be large, but not that large. Wait, so this was 
of Safari's revenue, thirty six percent comes strictly from Google. No, 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 no. Google's search revenue that I believe. Oh, I would, oh, thirty six percent of their search revenue comes from Safari. They pay, yeah, you know, like the I wouldn't oh, call wow. it blackmail. They don't call it blackmail, but the the or the bribe or whatever you call it, the the deal that they have. Google pays Apple, apparently. 36% of the revenue they aired on Google search okay. on the Safari browser or whatever you call it. I don't know. It's quite interesting. I don't know if it's quite that. Interesting. Like if you're just thinking about how much of Google's revenue probably comes from mobile. Mm-hmm. and I think it's oh, Safari's got to be their number one. Number one. I mean, iPhone know. users are the most valuable. You don't think desk like Chrome on the desktop is larger? Oh, from a money-making perspective, I'd say it's probably Safari because, I mean, it's one, predominantly the wealthier countries, Japan, US, Canada, Western Europe, China, or maybe China, I guess, exclude China. Google's not there. But, and then also, yeah, I mean, the most searches from mobile these days. So I think it's going to be quite valuable. I gotta say, as a Safari user, I think I'd be bummed if my default search engine switched to Bing or anything else. Something else. Duck, duck, <laughs> yeah. Go. Duck, duck, I think go. I'd be. I think I'd be. Well, just download. I, I I think a lot of people would end up downloading Chrome, which is kind of what I did because I just like to have all the Google logins saved way more seamlessly um, on an Apple device. But here's what my take is here is, and I'm curious if you guys agree or disagree. I think with this lawsuit, there again, some more stuff could come out. So with the information we have today, I think there is not that much risk to Google slash Alphabet from an investing perspective, financial perspective, you know, losing profits. But I think there is a lot of risk for Apple. What do you guys think? Eh, I think Apple tends to get the pass from regulators. Always. I don't know why but they do. Are you suggesting risk that Google stops paying this in some sort of way? That they're required to not do the, Yeah, I call it the bribe, but because I think in that situation, Google, yeah, okay, there could be some uncertainty of market share in search. But if Apple is required to not take bribes here, they can't just say, oh, well, we're not going to take it from Google. We're going to take it from someone else. The only one that has the money to do it would be Microsoft. It doesn't make like I would be concerned because what is this 20% of their overall earnings? I mean, if that goes away, it's not coming back. And how much would they have to grow to get that uh, back? It'd be five, six years, maybe even longer to grow and, and, 20% and to retain them. Of Probably the yeah. Apple's earnings. I mean, they earn like a hundred, hundred billion or so. So it's probably what half of the services revenue segment almost. No, a little and almost all the profits, almost all the profits, I would say. Hmm. I don't know. Any thoughts, John? It seems, I mean, it's, uh, I own both of these. Um, and I'm probably not. So the question I always ask myself when news comes out is, what do you do with it? Right. And, um, I'm definitely not doing anything with my alphabet, alphabet position. Um, which is a top five position for me. And I don't think I'll do anything here. I, I, I don't think I'll do anything with Apple because of this news. Um, I've been considering 
trimming my Apple position. But before this, like it's, you know, almost 2.8 trillion. It's not growing uh, as fast as the other mega cap tech names are. And it's trading at, I don't know what it is, 30 times earnings or something like that. Um, I'm not saying it's a sellout, but I've been considering trimming my position um, for that reason. So I'm not sure this news specifically is trade-worthy for me personally. I wonder how many people, wonder how many Apple shareholders just continue to hold because they just don't want to take the massive tax hit and they've been shareholders for a long time. Because I don't know a lot of people that are starting Apple positions today. No one sells it though. I mean, the indexes, Buffett's going to be staying there. He says it's a never sell for him. I mean, where is the sell? Like, uh, it's hard to see how it comes down unless something material. Like, I think if the worst case scenario in this situation where they lose all this money every year uh, happens, uh, yeah, the stock would go down. But if it just remains the status quo, it's kind of hard how, how that to see how that happens. But I think it's a fascinating trial. Yeah, add in the, the Microsoft stuff as well. I mean, these are the biggest companies in the world, some of those powerful institutions in the world, and we might see a big shakeup here. But also, sometimes they they uh, there's a lot of noise in the the regulation and the, the antitrust stuff, and nothing actually happens. I, I agree, Brad. I think I think what makes it most fascinating to me is just taking this trial out for a second and the revelations that came from this trial out for a second. It's the dominance of a handful of companies and how it's driving returns right now. Um, you know, the S and P is up. I don't know. It's at sixteen or eighteen percent this year, but the equal weight is up two percent this year. That's a big delta. That's a big, big, big delta. And you know, I think that since I've been on, uh, I think that since I've been on um, Twitter now X, I've made. Two sort of like high level calls that have been great. Two in in two and a half years. One was um, when home builders are trading at four times earnings and a discount to liquidation value. I tweeted twenty four times that I thought home builders were the place to be, and all of them were up a hundred percent. So that's one. It was a great call. At a, at a like high industry level, sector level, almost macro level. The other was November of 2021. I tweeted out, I think the single most important question investors need to ask themselves, the single most important question is how I, I worded it, is will mega cap tech maintain its dominance? Turns out that's pretty much the most important question because yeah. seven, eight, or nine, or 10 names have dominated the market returns, the the large yeah. market returns. Um, that's a pretty good call. Uh, and now when I made that call in November of 2021, mega cap tech was near a peak. And then it kind of fell for a while. You know, Amazon crashed, Google crashed a bit, but now they're all they're at basically they've recovered and then some. So now I think it's another time to be asking. Is mega cap tech going to maintain their dominance or are these small caps that have just massively underperformed going to pick up some of the slack? 
Now, yes. if we go into a recession, I don't, this is an if, small caps for a period of time may struggle even more because they don't have you know, $50 billion in net cash on the balance sheet. They don't have high enough credit ratings, and so it's going to be it's going to be more expensive for them to borrow. Um, they don't have multiple lines of business across, you know, across uh, product lines and geographies. They're just a little more risky. But if you look out five, seven years, do small caps take the torch again? I don't have an answer necessarily, but I think it's an important question investors need to be asking themselves. Yeah, it's a big unknown. And I think another thing to ask, and I know this is something that is very hard to have a take on, or it's it's still too to be determined. Like some people argue really strongly for the impact of uh, index funds. Some people say that it's vastly overrated. I think you got to ask, okay, if index funds continue to take market share, how do these stocks, like where is the selling pressure going to come from? Maybe. That's just something you say when they're, you know, uh, at the top. But yeah, uh, that's a big question. I I don't know. Like right now, I don't know any big tech. Part of it's because we're kind of transferring uh, some funds around at the moment. But it's a tough bet to make to have no mega cap tech exposure. If you want to, if you want to keep up with the index, it's very tough. <laughs> yeah, if you care about that, yeah, yeah, if, yeah if exactly, that, if that's, exactly. If that's something that you get paid to do. It's it's a very tough decision. I also yeah. I also think from a competitive standpoint, and I bet they've said this every time companies have become massive conglomerates or, or massive businesses, probably said this in the 80s, the 90s. But I look at the companies today and I think from a competitive standpoint, how on earth do you compete with them? Because you take a business yeah. like cloud and Google has been able to throw well, I guess they were kind of maybe early to it, but they've been able to lose and hemorrhage money for like 10 years before getting to profitability and scale. Other companies just can't afford that. So it's really, I just, they have kind of the unlimited resources and the willingness to go after a lot of those opportunities. We do have a ton of questions in the chat. So I feel like we should get to some of these. Brett, do you want to take any of these here? Sure, yeah. Yeah, we got one from John first. Says, awesome guest. Nice to see you, J-Row, on the podcast. John Galagos. He says, how do you like an alternative asset management basket? I don't know, maybe just in general. Like, sometimes we don't like to make recommendations, but uh, it, just a thought on that sector in general. Um, yeah, I've I've got an alternative asset management basket in my portfolio. There we go. Um, so, All right. Yeah, that would be a that would be a pro. <laughs> okay, here's what I think is maybe I don't think any of us are close followers of the company, but I think it can it's like it can be a good broader question asked. So he says, "This is Teha. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, thoughts on PBR, which is Petrobras, not the beer. Uh, nationalization risk seems low, and is that?" And 45% of free cash flow as dividends is hard to pass up. So I'm thinking he's saying it's at a 45% free cash flow yield. Okay, this is the Brazilian oil company. We don't have to talk about the Brazilian oil company, but maybe thoughts on international investing in general, emerging markets in general, like 
an achievement of price, some of these seem to make sense to me, but man, I, I like they're incredibly risky. And I don't know, John, have you ever, do you ever stray into that, that bucket at all? Not much, but if you look at oil and gas in general, in my opinion, um, the majors in the U S are, um, attractively valued and the majors outside of the US are trading at half the multiples the majors in the US are. Um, and so you could argue that they're outside of the US extremely attractively valued. It's an argument. Um, you know, I think at a high level, I mainly focus on the US, so I'll talk about the US, but at a high level, um, we underinvested in in oil and gas drilling new wells for the last 10 years or so. Um, and demand, I think, is going to hold stable or grow, um, especially in certain parts of the world, demand is going to grow and demand is going to be around for a long time. These are all my theses, my my hypothesis, my premise. And, and so, you know, I think maybe prices stay in a 60 to a hundred dollar range. I know that's a large range, but somewhere in that range. And at 60, these companies are still highly profitable. Um, and all they care about these days is not drilling, but just returning the cash to shareholders. And so you get these yeah. massive shareholder yields and the yields are even bigger outside of the U S or making huge acquisitions that, that that's which, right. Since they're not drilling. Yeah. Both. Yeah, both they're gonna those grow. Two. They're gonna grow by buying proven reserves through acquisition. Yeah, those now two, I'll say uh, there's one company that knows how to drill for oil organically. They know how to find it, and that's EOG. This is not you know investment advice, but EOG. What separates EOG from everyone else is that they do it organically. They know how to grow organically. Um, they have 10 plus years of inventory easy. Uh, they're in the Permian, which is, you know, everyone in the US invests through a Permian lens. Um, and we've been seeing consolidation in in the US with three announced deals so far. Um, Exxon announced a deal, Chevron announced a deal. Um, I think that was a third, but you know, EOG is kind of big. I don't know if it's 50 or 60 billion in market cap. I can't remember exactly. So it would be a big chunk for someone to pay. But um, that's a that's a unique asset because they do know how to find and drill for oil economically. And while, while everyone else has been going through ac- growing through acquisitions, they're doing it organically. Yeah. And I will, as a follow up on Petrobras, uh, I was wrong on the 45% free cash flow yield. It is a mandate to pay 45% of free cash flow out as a dividend, which is nice. Uh, you get a little bit of a mitigation of the currency risk mm-hmm. for at least US investors, anyone, I guess, that's not in the Brazilian market. And I will say the big short guys, the actual big short guys, uh, not Michael Burry, but the ones that worked at, uh, what's it called? I forget their fund now, but two Steve, of the guys. Steve Carell's fund. <laughs> Steve, yeah, that's Steve, how I think of it. Steve Eisman's old fund. Front <laughs> point partners or something. Yeah, so two of the guys, they they have uh, they were on Value After Hours and they did talk about Petrobras. So I would go maybe revisit that and the stuff they do. They know it way, way better than I think we do, and, but they are very Statistically, bullish on it. Statistically, extremely cheap. Yeah, 
statistically okay, extremely have, cheap. We have a teasing question from Travis Hoyam. Uh, John, what's your favorite cryptocurrency? But <laughs> then he follows up with his actual question. Are there once not profitable SaaS companies uh, that have turned the corner to profitability that interest you? And I think he's implying that the last couple of years you've been cons- concerned uh, over the unprofitability and valuation of these things. Yeah. Um, I own um, HubSpot. That one interests me a lot. I don't know much about it, but um, smarter people than me um, talk very highly about HubSpot. And so I own a little bit of HubSpot. Um, I own Paycom, which was already profitable. Um, was it Paycom yeah. that just got yeah destroyed it was. this quarter? You want to know? Yeah. So I'm sorry. I don't. There's not many more. Travis, I appreciate the question. Um, you know, I think a lot of these are good business. I think you know, Snowflake. It's hard to argue it's not a good business. It's very hard to argue. Um, hard to argue that Zscaler and CrowdStrike are not good businesses. Um, it's just not where I'm spending a lot of my time, but I do appreciate the question. But Ryan, this is the story I wanted to bring. Um, it's not a macro story, but I think 2023 was the year compounders started to break. Let me give you what I mean. So I'm not talking about unprofitable. I'm talking about I'm talking about companies that investors gave the compounder title to. Okay. Dollar General broke. That thing was seen as invincible by a certain crowd. Adian broke. I I know that they're starting to recover, but broke. Dollar General and Adian were selling off every single day for two weeks, every single day. And you said, so, and it would you were you're just wondering when it was going to stop. Paycom, Paycom was was one of two SaaS companies. I think, given that compounder status, them and Viva, because they were soundly profitable and free cash flow generative. Paycom broke. Um, Next Era Energy. This was a utility that historically traded at 30 times earnings. Broke. Um, I think that's the story of the year. I think I think 2023 is the year compounder started to break. Paycom is one example. And um, I think that continues into 2024. And the one thing I'll I'll add there is when sometimes you look at a business and you love it, you absolutely love what the business is doing. You think it's going to be a bigger business in the future in terms of like customers, revenue, whatever you want to call it. And you compromise on price. This is a great or compromise on multiple. This is a great example of if you love those businesses. It might not come this year. It might not come the next year. It might not come for the next five years, but you will get it at an attractive valuation eventually. I can't, other than maybe Costco, I can't think of any business that has perpetually traded at kind of a ludicrous multiple without ever coming back down. And maybe Costco has. Well, Costco is, I mean, Costco, I believe people turned, I, I'll pull up the chart, but I, I believe that's only been the last five or so years when people kind of, fully came to consensus on that but john maybe i don't know if you have the i'll try to pull up the data but when i say broke break i mean 
the stock price broke. Yeah. You know, yeah. falling 50, 60, 70% in a matter of weeks. I'm not talking about the business, the business model, the moat. And that's the, that is the point though, Ryan. Like you can wait. You can wait. And no company is invincible. And valuation is going to come for every company at some point in time, in my opinion. Y'all know Illumina? Have y'all looked at this thing? I've seen yes. a lot of people talk about it. I don't really know it. Not closely, but yeah, I just know the general a ten, overview. 10-year low. Trading really? at the same price it did in 2013. This is a company that has a technology for gene sequencing. I don't know much about it either, but it may... And this is not a statement on COVID vaccines, but it was impressive how quickly we were able to develop COVID vaccines. Well, that would not have been able to happen without Illumina's technology. Just plain and simple. This is not a statement on whether you're pro or negative vaccine. The technology allowed it to be developed as quickly as it was. Um, that seems like a unique asset. Stock, stock is down at 2013 levels. Yeah. And- yeah, it seems like from what I've read, and again, not an expert on it, but people that are experts say that it's sort of a monopoly. It would be hard to disrupt. And yeah, yeah they got an activist in there. I think icons in there and it's been super messy. I believe they made a bad acquisition that they're trying to break off again or force them to they're break being out. Forced to. They, they made an acquisition yeah. after being told they shouldn't and they closed on it anyway. And now they're being forced to divest it. I think what's, yeah, what's the most interesting part here is, okay, you can love Illumina. The narrative on it is fantastic for 10 years. And then you can say, okay, I'm going to wait for the right price. But the right price is only going to show up when things look messy. So mm -hmm. I think you have to be prepared. Like, okay, maybe you have high conviction on Dollar General. Maybe you have high conviction on Adyen. Maybe you have high conviction on Illumina. Um, like, it's not going to feel as... It's not going to feel as good, but you have to trust the work you did in the past and say, like, look, the, the price does drive narrative a lot of the time. I mean, you could probably see people talking about that with C Limited. That's another compounder that seems to have broke, but that's maybe more of a two-year journey. Yeah. Um, it is funny how yeah. you think, like, uh, you know what? If this valuation got cut in half, I'd buy it. And then it's like valuation gets cut in half. And you're like, yeah, the thesis is broken. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, you always have to ask, okay, why would the valuation get cut in half? It's because a lot of people stop believing. And yeah, you have, yeah like, yeah, this one makes it hard. This one makes to, it hard. To, okay, answer, to answer kind of Travis's question a little more, there, there are some companies that come to mind for me. I think Monday.com is kind of one where they've now turned the quarter towards turn the corners towards profitability and they've continued to grow kind of even through this sass mageddon but a lot of the ones where like profitability was visible and you had the sense that they could do that feels like they never really got as cheap as i would have preferred like it, it seems like analysts kind of knew like okay profitability is there it's just a matter of choice or time yeah just because it's down 50 percent does not make it cheap um, anything else on that guys? Cause I think with John here as a guest, that's someone who interviews, talks with all these, I think I have a good topic that could be, I don't know, maybe something that you could ask on the J Row show. There was this, uh, this is, it was like a meme joke tweet about using alternative data. I don't need to read through the whole thing, but it's like asking what they're asking, what alternative data even is like. Do other funds have access to it? Like what makes it alternative? Kind of like if everyone has it, you know, is there actually an edge there? They're kind of poking fun out of it, at it. Um, 
so I guess we've talked about that before. We're not really in the, we don't have the budget for alternative data. So we kind of just get snippets of people post stuff online or share it around. But I mean, John, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Because the way I look at it is if every single person is subscribing to one of these things, then it can't, by definition, that it's not going to be worth it. And if you kind of look at a month data going into earnings season, I mean, it feels like it's just way too much, maybe not way too much work, but the juice isn't really worth the squeeze. But again, curious your thoughts on this type of stuff. I think that information, you know, there's, I think if you want to outperform the market, you have to have an edge. And I think the an information edge is the hardest type of edge to come across. Um, it's possible because all, you know, all information is available to all investors at the same time, right? Public and of publicly available information. But it's possible to have an information edge if you do what you mentioned the big short guys did. Um, no one else was going, very few people, maybe you could count them on your hand, was going mortgage by mortgage by mortgage by mortgage inside of these collateralized debt obligations. That was a clear information edge because they were willing to work harder, dig deeper. So, um, but I think an information edge is harder and harder to get these days. The second type of edge is an analytical edge. What are you doing with that information? I suppose there are some people, some firms that are better at interpreting alternative data that are better at incorporating alternative data into their overall framework and process. Um, so I, you know, I think even though it's possible that everyone has access to the data, um, it's how you interpret it that could possibly give you an edge. So, you know, it, maybe it's worth it for some firms. Yeah. Never, it feels like whenever something goes down, like, between quarterly reports and it's kind of like on its own, my instant thought is like someone's got alternative data. <laughs> someone's yeah, someone's or the, the, they're interpreting it as bearish. But what's interesting, and I think this is a fun exercise for anyone to do, anyone can do this, is whenever I read an earnings release, I try to sometimes I'll look at the, you know, you catch the 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 stock reaction or something like that, but you read the earnings release and then you say, okay, do you think the stock's gonna be up or down? And you can do this without like, you know, I'm sure John is in this boat too of uh you're not you know if you're not tracking exactly what the earnings per share revenue estimate is and you say okay you look at this earnings release kind of of your own internal expectations was there any positive surprise or negative surprise and you go okay do i think the stock's going to be up or down after hours or up or down tomorrow i my track record is coin flip so coin flip it's yeah i have no idea what's going to happen so i think that for the alternative data i think you can get it but the concern with me is like, okay, how do you interpret that? As as you I, mentioned, John, I also always think like, you think there's those funds that pay for satellites to track like inventory in the yard or like how parking many people, lots. how many <laughs> people are pulling up to the parking lot, and I just think like, if someone showed me for that quarter how many cars were in the parking lot versus a year ago. How many quarter? How many cars were in the parking lot that quarter? Long term, I have no idea what that's going to mean. It doesn't like maybe if you were just trading for that quarter, like yeah, I'm sure you'll get some edge there if you're the one with the satellites. But if there's a little less cars in the Costco parking lot, I don't think I have no idea what that's going to mean for the stock five years down the road. Yeah, which is yeah, kind of where we well. Um. 
So I have so many thoughts rolling around in my head right now. So yesterday I was talking to a um, top 10, I think, best known hedge fund manager in the US on the phone. And I I didn't ask him if I could mention his name, so I'm not going to mention the name. But, um, you know, so at one point in time in the conversation, and it was to try to get him onto the show. That's why we were talking. And at one point in time in the conversation, um, he talked about how doing things the way that he did them um, required high velocity, is how he put it. And it required maniacal focus on markets, business, and investing. Maniacal focus, right? And so he would go through all of these things that he would do. He's, he, one exercise he does is um, he asks himself if he were to build up the portfolio from scratch every week, would the portfolio look the exact same way as it currently does in the same size? Every week he asks himself that. Doesn't mean he's restarting his portfolio every week, but he's re-underwriting the thesis in his head every single week for every single position in his portfolio. Every single position. And he's connecting all of these different data points. It's not just fundamental data, right? He's looking at liquidity data, especially on the short side. He's looking at factor exposure, which is such a huge risk in the short term. He's looking at alternative data. He's looking at macro data points. He's looking at fundamental data points, valuation data points. He's got models built on every company in the portfolio. And it's constantly connecting the dots for all of these things every day and every week. And he's maniacally focused on his screens and on his names and on his watch list. And, you know, going, hearing that made me think about how relative to that, I'm a pretty one-dimensional investor. I'm really good. Like no bullshit. I'm really good at, I think, understanding business models understanding industry dynamics, understanding competitive advantages, and not just sources of competitive advantage, but you know, having some sense of the durability and sustainability and trajectory of those modes. I think I'm really good at accounting and financial statement analysis. I think I'm really good at valuation. The fundamentals, right? The fundamentals of stock picking. I never think about liquidity because I'm not managing a short portfolio, a short book. I don't think about factor exposure as much as I should, but I'm starting to incorporate it in the last like 12 months. Um, maybe maybe I'd care more about liquidity if I had more money. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. Then it might or, become a problem. Um, yeah. You know, I I am I am starting to think a lot more about factor exposure, but I'm definitely not, you know, an expert at it. Um you know, alternative data points, like like you said, Brett, you know, when I get access to them, when I see them, I try to think about it and I try to connect those dots, but I'm not doing it day in and day out like he is. Um, you know, if you're really managing a long, short book and understanding the math behind gross versus net, um, how to how to leverage up a portfolio and manage towards um, volatility. And and beta exposure and all of these things. 
I'm very one-dimensional when it comes to that. And that's okay. For what I do, I beat the market. I enjoy doing it. I learn. But then there's people, there's levels to everything in life. And just hearing this guy, I was like, oh my God, I am such a beginner. And I've been doing it for 25 years. I'm just so much so much more one-dimensional than, than some of these just true masters. And Question that's what I want. Question yeah. for you. Do you care about some of those things? Not that like, I mean, yes, if you're managing for, if you're managing a fund, I think you definitely should care about some of those things, but for your own PA, your own personal account, do you care about the liquidity? Do you care about the factor, factor exposure, all the stuff exposure? You know, I think it comes down to, I think it comes down to personality uh, and emotional constitution, right? So, um, my personality, my emotional constitution, the way I like to do things is I like to find one or two or three new ideas a year. Like very, very sloth-like to use a Buffett phrase, right? That's just – that's the speed. I That's the velocity I enjoy working at. There are people – who that's just too slow and boring for them. And their brains are too freaking smart. There's too much going on. There's too much synapses firing too quickly. Um, like, like, look, Druckenmiller, right? 30% annualized. None of us can do what he does. His synapses are firing so much faster than ours are. He's connecting dots from all over the world and all over these data sets instantaneously. It's like, you know, Buffett says Munger has the fastest 30 second mind in the world. That may be true. Druckenmiller's up there too. I can't, I, I don't know the man, but you know, you you look at how he thinks and how he acts and how he trades and how he talks. You got to imagine he's got one of the fastest 30 second minds in the world. I don't have yeah. that. And I, and I don't, I just, I'm just a much slower mover. So, so no, um, Ryan, it, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy doing it my way. doesn't mean I don't admire the crap out of someone doing it the other way, though. Yeah, and the, uh, for anyone that wants to listen to Druckenmiller, he did talk pretty openly on a lot of stuff in an interview with Paul <laughs> Tudor Jones uh, recently. If you search that, you'll find it. Um, I will say another thing that this reminds me of is when maybe I'll – I like to throw out if I'm kind of interested in something – you know, throw out a couple of bullet points on Twitter and then just say, okay, where am I wrong here? And then I always get a lot of responses or some people, maybe not always, but sometimes you get a response and it says, oh, well, next quarter is going to be terrible for blank, blank, blank. And I'm like, oh yeah, they could be right. But I, I don't really, you know, it's like the time horizon mismatch can kind of get people to debate a lot of things. And in reality, you might agree with them, but you just might not care because if you're that, not trying to trade in and out of this thing, you, you know. That's why you, That's why both sides can be, the long and the short can be right. Absolutely, yeah. the long and the short can be right depending on time frame. I don't know, that is, it's funny, like, and it's kind of different between us and the fund versus like my personal account because, you know, you don't have the consistent money coming in. So you kind of got to, you have to care more about what happens in the short term because you have to report that. But in the personal account, people will lay out some of these reasons why something might get destroyed in the next quarter. And I kind of think like, yeah, that's a really good point, but it doesn't really matter to me. Like it doesn't, it doesn't affect what I believe this business can do over the long run, but we yeah, do have a ton always, of questions uh, here. Do we want to get to any of these? Yeah, we do, we have, do we have two any minutes left? What would you uh, be seeing the other 
Tasia said a couple, and then there was also um, there was a question from Jay Weasende Snow. I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong, but it says <laughs> J Row exclamation mark. What's good, fellas? Joining late. Have you shared your thoughts on the no that earnings from last week? I think Why don't we, we did those that. next week, maybe. Yeah. Uh, did we talk? I thought we, I think, I thought we talked about it last week. What what company? Did we? Nelnet. It's a oh. it's a Jim Gillies. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Okay. I, I I thought he was asking me about Nelnet. I I, I know y'all are in it. I know Jim Gillies loves it. Yeah, I know it. It's uh, a little bit of a yeah. Why don't we uh, boring? Quarter. I think we, <laughs> we could talk about it. Yeah, it's always boring, but we can maybe talk about it next week. Actually, maybe I don't think we talked about it last week. There were so many okay. other earnings, but. We got one minute, so I'm going to ask one more question to both of you guys. 13F season, probably otherwise known as confirmation bias season. Is there any 13Fs? <laughs> some good confirmation bias. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Are there any 13Fs that you act that you follow consistently and care about? Absolutely. I mean, I look at Berkshire's. I'm not going to lie, but you know, I, I look at I, I tend to look at concentrated managers. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So. Uh, Klarman one time said that Steve Mandel um, was the best stock picker of 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 his generation. It's, it's incredible, incredible um, compliment coming from 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 Seth Klarman. Well, so Steve Mandel is on Datarama, and y'all, as y'all all know, but I don't even think he's managing the fund anymore. But regardless, he's got like a hundred stocks in that fund, right? Like. I can't do anything with that. So, like, if I'm looking yeah. at Steve Mandel's stuff and I have the most respect for the man in the world, he's one of the all time best stock pickers. I'm only looking at, you know, his top 10 holdings or the big, big moves the fund makes. You know what I mean? Like, increases a position by, by 500% or 2000% or something like that. That's something that will catch my eye. But in, if he's got a new buy, in a name that's a 0.03 position, it doesn't really do anything for me emotionally. And so, but if a concentrated manager makes a new buy or adds big that I respect and admire, uh, that that's absolutely catching my eye. Yeah, I think one, uh, what I like to look at is, okay, is it someone as a fund manager that probably follows a similar strategy that I'm looking for, which is like 10 to 15 companies, maybe even a little less, and basically buy and hold uh, quality companies. One that comes to mind that I like to follow is Valley Forge, mm-hmm. which the, if I look at their portfolio today, they could have international six or six or seven that. or eight stocks or something. I think. Yeah, I see. Yeah. FICO, S and P, Mastercard, Moody's, Intuit, Visa, Aspen Technology, which I actually don't know what that is, and then ASML. It's a, it's a software company. Software company. They had zero activity last quarter, so I guess not interesting. And then I also look. Uh, because I like coupon a lot, I do one in my personal account. Uh, I look if Drucken Miller still has it as his largest position. So I do look at that every quarter just for confirmation Why not? bias. But Man's a genius. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If he's if he sold out of it, like I don't know. I think it's interesting though on that company that he's been in it for so long. Um, yep. But yeah, I think that's really all I look at for thirteen Fs. I don't think Berries is very important. I don't think the ones that are like you know, either deep value or or active traders are very valuable because it's on a 90-day leg. So you have to be looking for ones, I think, where the, the leg doesn't matter because who knows what Burry's doing. I look at Einhorn, you know, religiously. I look at Cooperman religiously. I think the Valley Forge guys are great girls. Um, you know, there's some. I, I, I Look, I get excited for 13 FCs. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, some are just more helpful to me than others. Yep. All right. Well, 
I think that's going to do it, everyone. We're a couple minutes over, but thank you for everyone that joined the live chat. Appreciate all the questions. You can listen to the J Row Show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure if you do listen, give it a five star review. Uh, I will, as a disclosure, so that we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Any of us may own, buy, or sell stocks on this podcast that we talked about. John, thank you again for joining. Thank you all. We'll see everyone. We'll see you all next time.